ever had that moment when a young child runs up to you just frantic, maybe with excitement, maybe in pain, just blabbering something in what could be English, and you literally have no idea what they're talking about? You have to stop, you know, you have to stop them. Okay, where were you? Who was with you? What happened? You need context, because when they come just crying, speaking in tongues, you don't know what they're, doing, what they're saying. You need context. Context is very important to be able to make sense of the world. This just happened to me moments ago. FD and I will banter back and forth often uh, on a Sunday morning. And just before we got started this morning, I had bumped into FD, and immediately he said, I didn't do it, but I thought about it. I have no idea what he's talking about. I don't know what he did. I don't know what he's thinking about doing. And I thought, that's what I'm talking about. I had no context. I mean, he could have killed someone. And I don't, I don't, maybe that's what he's talking about. He, like, or he wanted to kill someone, he, he, but he didn't do it. But now he's thinking about it. It could have been about Mark. I don't know. May want to kill Mark. Maybe he's going to do it later. I don't know. Uh, happy Mother's Day, Mark. But you see, this is, context is very important, and what, what we're about to do is step into a several-week exploration of one of Paul's most famous sermons. It's this moment that Paul preaches in front of a group of philosophers. He's in Athens, Greece. He's been invited to share his message, and now he's going to speak among some of the smartest people in the region. And it's a sermon that has been that has been explored by scholars and lay people for generations. But before we ever step in to the depth of that sermon, I want to give it some context. You know, before Luke ever records the sermon, you know what he does? He lays out the story before the message. So he actually lays the groundwork for the context for what he's even going to say in the sermon. And so I thought, well, if Luke finds it important enough to give the background to the sermon, then why don't we just take one Sunday and lay the groundwork for what is probably one of Paul's most famous sermons ever recorded. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So we're going to step in to set the scene. Acts 17, verse 16, and we'll go all the way to verse 21. And I think you and I are going to find that this, this setup for this message has a lot to say to your life and to my life right here in 2021. Here's, here's what, how Luke sets the context. For Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now where we go next week is we step into verse 22 when Paul steps into the message, the content of the message. 
But right here, these five verses have a lot to tell us about what's going to happen next. So we start the scene with Paul in the city of Athens, and he's walking around and he's noticing all of these idols. There are idols of all kinds of different gods, and tied to these idols are temples. And so all around him are idols. Now remember, Paul's a Jew. He was trained as a Jew. This is a, this is a man from an early age who was hearing the stories of the Old Testament. And I am sure, as he's walking through the city full of idols, that he is remembering the story of his own people. How when they were rescued from Egypt, it didn't take long for them to set up a golden calf and worship another idol. And so, for Paul, this runs deep because his own people have struggled with idolatry. And now, in a city, a city not even rooted in the biblical story of the Exodus, of the God of Israel creating the world, in this city, he's seen idol after idol after idol. And something stirs in his spirit. The NIV translates it, he is greatly distressed. The Greek there is, his spirit is provoked provoked. So really it's ambiguous. We're not really sure to what extent he is, he, his heart is heavy with sorrow or his spirit is angry. Translations go both ways. But what we have here is a man whose spirit is provoked. Something inside him has been stirred up. Interestingly, he doesn't do what many of us might do. He doesn't get on a street corner, put a sign up and tell them they're all going to hell. That's not what he does. He starts to reason with them. He starts to walk with them logically through the very, the very systems of thought they have with the, what he's presenting. He begins to reason with them. And he begins in the synagogue, as he often does. But it doesn't take long until Paul is out in the marketplace. He's out where people are living. It's important that we are where people live. He doesn't just go to the church building. And so he's out among the people and he's beginning to share a particular message, a message about Jesus and the resurrection. And it doesn't take long while he's in the marketplace that he catches the attention of a couple groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And it's no, no accident that Luke wants to record the names of these philosophers. These are, again, those tied to Epicurus and those tied to the line of Stoic thinking that comes from Zeno. Both of these groups carry a certain set of ideas about the world. And we just need to take a quick look at what they are. So just, this is just going to be a, a quick run-through, both those groups. So first, let's look at Epicureanism. This is uh, a, a way of thinking that emerges from Epicurus. Uh, you can see here in the 4th and 3rd century B.C. Here are some key ideas for Epicureanism. Nothing exists but matter in space. The purpose of life is pleasure and happiness, and you want to avoid pain. That's the key to Epicureanism. Some scholars say if you had to summarize Epicureanism in a phrase that we might use today, you would uh, summarize it with eat, drink, and be merry. Now, if you're a Dave Matthews fan, you immediately just put, and tomorrow will die, and you've got, you've got Tripp and Billy's playing in your head right now. Okay. All right, but that's the, that's the, that's the core of Epicureanism. Stoicism, here's what, what we're looking at when we look at the Stoics. This is coming from Zeno, same, same uh, uh, centuries, again, uh, centuries before Jesus shows up on the scene in the 4th and the 3rd centuries B.C. 
Now, they're going to be having, they have an understanding of the world that we might describe as pantheism. That is, the divine is in everything. And life then needs to move in harmony with reason. And we need to be one with nature. And we need to suppress desire. The core of all life is in reason. It's in the logos. It's in the mind. And so things physical need to be harnessed. We need to suppress that which is biological so that we can move higher and higher into the eternal being that fills everything. The pew and your shoes, the light bulbs. We need to come into harmony with the divine that fills the world. And so don't get too caught up in desire. You need to move deeper into reason, growing in harmony with all the world. All right. Now, those two, those two particular uh, systems of thinking, these two philosophies carry lots of different ideas. And these are just a, a few of them here we've summarized. But there's, there's one particular idea in both of these philosophies that the Apostle Paul is very aware of. It's how they understand the afterlife. Everyone, everywhere, has an understanding of the afterlife. Everybody carries something, some idea about the afterlife. And for Epicureanism, here's what that looked like. And I want to quote now from one scholar who summarizes it this way. For Epicureanism and this idea of the afterlife, there's no life after death. When the body dies, the soul disintegrates. And according to Epicurus, here, here's what he wrote, death is nothing to us. For the body, when it has been resolved into its elements, has no feeling, and that which has no feeling is nothing to us. You are the sum of your physical parts, which is why you go grab as much pleasure as you can get within moderation so you don't ruin yourself. But you go grab desire and pleasure. That's where you find happiness. And so when you die, it's gone. That's it. Your body dissolves. And that would be this particular view coming out of Epicureanism. Now, take Stoicism. Stoicism and the idea of the afterlife, here's how one scholar summarizes it. There's a limited survival after death, but not in the sense of a personal individual existence. Individual human souls will ultimately be absorbed into the basic elements of, uh, in periodic cosmic clagrifications, uh, which, this is a, I'm not going to go there. I, I figured it was best to quote the scholar and go with that word than to not quote at all. Seneca, a famous Stoic, says this, We whose souls are blessed and have shared in eternity will be changed into our former elements. Your former elements are that divine reason, the divine mind. It's being one with everything. So when you die, you just get absorbed. You're no longer an individual. You just get taken up into the whole of the divine. That's kind of the way the afterlife works. Now, this would vary among different people in each of these groups. There's not like that this was rock solid among every piece, person that would identify with either of these groups. But in general, this is how they understood the afterlife. And I hope what you see in both of them is that in neither is there a bodily resurrection. In neither one of these is there such a thing as the body dying and being risen, coming back to life. There is no bodily resurrection in either one of these. So, when Paul shows up and he begins to interact with both of these groups of people, 
it would be no surprise that the one thing he decides to hit them with inside of the story of Jesus is the resurrection. So just go back, verse 18. Remember what, Paul said, what Paul's preaching. He's preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. There are a lot of other things he could have preached. But he makes sure to emphasize the bodily resurrection. And for both of these groups, both groups who believe either that the body, when it dies, goes away, or when you die, you get subsumed into some mind, some, some, some divine mind, neither of them believe there would be a bodily resurrection. And here Paul shows up on the scene with the idea that there is such a thing as a bodily resurrection. And that's exactly what they hear him preaching. They hear him bringing a new idea. And so what do they do? They invite him. We want you to hear more about your new ideas. They're not necessarily afraid of these ideas. They're just, they're just one of many. So come, bring your new ideas. We want to hear you. And so he comes and he, they invite him to stand in the lecture hall. Come and share your new ideas. But what they expect Paul to do is the very opposite of what he actually does. You see, they are expecting him to bring a set of ideas. Remember, verse 21, just, this was that parenthetical thought when he describes the Athenians. Sounds quite relevant to our day too, doesn't it? All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. So why wouldn't they think that Paul's going to come and just bring them his particular set of ideas? But Paul, what Paul's going to do is he's actually going to bring them a worldview. He's actually going to bring them a picture of reality. He's not just going to talk about his idea about the afterlife. He's going to share with them a story that he believes frames everything. It takes into account your shoes, light bulbs, the computer, dust on the ground, temples, idols. It will take into account every part of life. He's going to bring them a world view. Very important. So summarize it like this. I want to summarize it just by saying this. Uh, let's go one more. I've got them mixed up in my head. Here it is. Paul is not explaining an idea. He's telling them how the whole world works and who's at the center of it. No surprise, when we get into the content of the message, right near the front of the message, he's going to say something about the creation, about the whole world. So let me give you a preview. Verse 24. Go back one. Let's just go back one slide. Verse 24. This is in the heart of the message. We'll go back one slide. I got I, I got a mixed up. That's all right. We are, you are in good company. Me being good company. Go, go back one slide. There it is. Verse 24. The God, this is front part of his sermon, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. That's a worldview. That is an understanding of how the world works and who's at the center. He's not just bringing an idea. He's bringing a worldview. Very important. And this is a hallmark for Paul. So I want you to notice how he does this in two of his two famous letters he wrote. One to the Romans, one to the Colossians. And I want you to see how he frames the story of Jesus. Is the story of Jesus just another idea among many ideas? Is it just one myth among the many myths that exist? Or is it the story? For Paul, it is the story. Notice how he does it. Romans 1. I don't know why I picked up my Bible. Here it is. Romans 1, 20 through 21. Here's how he begins to frame the story of Jesus. 
he starts by writing this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, well, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see what Paul is doing as he begins to tell the story of Jesus in this letter to the Romans, a church made up primarily of non-Jews. This is a church primarily of Gentiles. This is the same kind of audience that he's going to preach to when he's among the philosophers in Athens. He starts by telling the story of the creation of the world. And at the creation of the world, things were good and God was seen in all of his qualities. And yet it didn't take long for humans to rebel. And what happened was their thinking went futile and their hearts grew dark. This is a universal problem. You feel this problem? I feel this problem. I still got this problem. And so he sums up this universal problem by saying this, I think you probably know this verse, Romans 3, last part of verse 22 and verse 23. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a universal problem. That's not just a message about a particular idea of what happens to you when you die. This is a view of the world that takes into account every human being. Jew, Gentile, you have a problem. You have rebelled and we have fallen short of God's glory. That's your problem. And mine too. That's not an idea. That's a view of the whole world. And so how do you solve that problem? Is Jesus just one God among many that are going to step in onto the stage to fix this problem? For Paul, Jesus is at the center of the solution because he is the solution. Here he is. Here's what he says just a few verses later, Romans 3, verse 24 through 25, and we'll look at it in the New Living Translation. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. That's a universal solution. That's not just one God coming to save one group of people. That's God solving the human problem. So when Paul wants to talk about Jesus, he's not just giving one idea in a lecture about comparative religion where he'll talk about Muhammad and, and Buddha. No, it is Jesus. And Jesus is a, the center, the universal solution. He is the one around which, on which everything hangs. Jesus is not an idea. He's a person. And through him, everything holds together. And this is exactly what Paul will say in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 21, probably one of the fattest passages about Jesus. Here it is. He writes this. We're going to read this in the New Living Translation again. Christ is the invisible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities, and the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. And through Him, God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth, 
by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You see here, you see how big Jesus is? The philosophers weren't expecting to get the whole package. They were expecting something very differently. Jesus holds it all together. Why in the world is your life held together the way it is? It's because of Jesus. A real person living right now, holding authority in all the world. So, summarize it. Let's bring this to a point. Here's the summary. The philosophers thought Jesus was an idea among many ideas. Paul will preach that Jesus is the person around whom everything else revolves. So important. So that sets the stage for where we go over the next few weeks. Paul's about to bring a story of the world. A worldview telling them who sits at the center of this world. It will be very different than just bringing another idea among many. That's where we're going to go. So it's very important to see the stage set. This is the context for the next few weeks sitting in the sermon. Now what in the world does that have to do with your life and my life? I actually think it has a lot to do with our lives. Because I think we have been trained and we have been well trained to see Jesus more like the Athenian philosophers than like the Apostle Paul. We have been well trained to see Jesus as just another idea among many ideas. So if I had to illustrate that, here's how I'd illustrate it right here. You see, I think Jesus is seen for, for many of us as just one among many. We have ideas, we have theories in the scientific world. We have particular ideas about gender and politics and race and gender again. I thought it was so important. I wanted to double it. And then you have Jesus. Jesus. I don't know who creates the slides, but I'll talk to him later. Um, you have Jesus. You see, you have Jesus over here. And when we want to talk about Christianity, we'll pull Jesus out of his box and we'll talk about Jesus. We'll study Christianity. But when we're done, we'll put him back and then we'll go on to talk about our politics and gender and race. And we just see him as one among many. And this begins to play out in our personal lives, too, doesn't it? So take a look. So if we had to just make it, put it in a, a personal context, we have sports, we have our job, we have vacation, we have social media, we have our family or our friends, and no doubt we have our Jesus. And we particularly have our Jesus on Sunday morning when we go to church. But then on Sunday afternoon, we probably have some type of sporting event. And then we have dinner. And then on Monday morning, we have our jobs. So we get, we get our Jesus, we'll get our Jesus, we'll do that. But then we got everything else that, 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 that we have to make sure to, that, that's in play in our life. I tend to think this is how many of us have learned to interact with Jesus. I don't know, I just resonate with this. That's why I created it. Because I sometimes struggle to see Jesus in all of life. And if you let me, I just want to slip in now just this one verse from Colossians 3-4. Just a couple of chapters after what we just read in Colossians 1. Just take a look at how Paul understands this. He says this, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with Him in glory. What? It feels much more comfortable to have Jesus as just a part of my life and then me to have all the other pieces that I like to, to enjoy and, and, and to participate in. But Paul here says, Jesus literally is is your life. He is not just this like piece of your life with everything else. He is your life. And so when He appears, guess what? 
you will become like him because he's your life. So here's what, if I had to illustrate what I think Colossians 3, 4 might look like if we use the circle illustration, here's what I think he's saying. Jesus is your life. And so when you play sports, you play sports as a follower of Jesus. This is why you're not allowed to get angry, cuss out your opponent, and then go to church the next Sunday and think everything's okay. This is why you can't gossip about people at work, throw them under the bus, and then come to church and think everything's fine. It's because every part of your life is Jesus. It's why when I'm at home and I am disciplining my beautiful, lovely children, I have to do it in a way like Jesus. And yet in my body, I still have the muscle memory of anger and rage and frustration. And it has a way of coming out. But I need to be under I need to continue to train in such a way that I become the kind of person that no matter what would happen to me, no matter the circumstance, I am flowing with Jesus. And so Jesus is in all of my life, my thinking and wherever my body is. This is what we're called to. And so when you're driving, you're driving like Jesus. By the way, Jesus drives just a little bit over the speed limit <laughs> on Old Farm Road. Just in case you were wondering, it's in the Greek. It's going to be in the sermon we're going to look at. I, I promise you. Uh, okay. Do you see, you see how all this might work? Okay, so let me drive us then to a next step. A next step that can take all of this and bring it down to something we can do this week. Here's the next step. Think about Jesus where you normally don't. There are a lot of places that you do think about Jesus. I would guess that you're thinking about Jesus right now. It wasn't hard to think about Jesus when you came to the church building. I imagine most of you here in just a little bit, you will have some type of meal. And you will do what before that meal? You will pray. You'll think about Jesus before your meal. But I don't know that many of us are thinking about Jesus when we watch the Cardinals beat whoever they're going to beat today. Right? That was the tip of the hat. It was the tip of the hat. It was the tip of the hat. All right. All right. I don't believe it, but I, it's a tip of the hat. All right. <laughs> okay. But you see, you, we, what does it look like to watch a sporting event knowing that gee, you are Jesus in that moment? Now, it doesn't mean you have to watch a sporting event with your hands put together like you're in prayer. Now, some of you might, depending on, the, on how the sporting event's going, but you get the point. You don't have to act holy, what you think is holy, everywhere you go. No, you just carry your life like you normally would, understanding that Jesus flows through you wherever you are. When you're working out, you, you are with Jesus. When you're running, you're with Jesus. When you're parenting, you're with Jesus. When you're playing the guitar, you're with Jesus. All of it with Jesus. So if you've really never thought about Jesus as being with you when you're preparing a meal, Jesus. Think about Jesus right there. When you, think about being, when you think about going to bed and watching a TV show just before you go to bed, just remember that you carry Jesus with you right there. I'm just saying wherever, wherever you typically don't think about Jesus, 
Think about Jesus. This is why I'm always always using the driving illustration. Because when I am behind someone that is so slow, I want to go right up on that bumper. And it's at that moment I realize, if my life is Jesus, then my life has to reflect Jesus and how I'm driving right here. Because let's be honest, it would be a lot easier to only think about Jesus and act like Him in this building. Oh, that would be a lot easier. But we are called to be a people whose life is Christ everywhere. I'm going to share how this looked in one person's life. They shared it with me this week. I was talking to a friend. He has a son on the autism spectrum. And one of the challenges they have with his son is that every once in a while, this, their son will get really angry. And it's really hard to bring them back around to reason and get them off uh, you know, pull them away from the anger of that moment. And so one of the things that, that my friend was telling me was they wrote a prayer for their son and they put it as a reminder in their phone, in, in, the, in the teenager's phone, so that it would pop up a couple times a day and they would begin training to pray that prayer. And then anytime they got angry, pull the prayer up and pray it before you go any farther. Now, you see what's happening there. Typically, we don't think about Jesus just in our comings and goings. But the phone triggers Jesus in a moment where you typically wouldn't think about Jesus and put a prayer in front of the Son. It wasn't on Sunday morning. And it wasn't. It's not during the church service. It's just in the regular Monday morning routine. And boom, Jesus popping up. So I want to just read you this prayer. I think this is wonderful. This is the kind of thing I'm thinking about when I say, think about Jesus, where you typically don't. Here's the prayer. Dear Lord, help me to understand others. Help me to overcome autism. And help me to choose to be nice, not negative. Make me a good, successful person and Christian. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I think that's one of the best prayers I've ever read. And there's no high church language anywhere in it. Just simple, ordinary English. Those are the kind of prayers God can handle. Isn't that a wonderful prayer to train, train this, this teenager to pray when they're, not even thinking, when, when they're not typically thinking about Jesus? That's the goal. Paul is going to take his sermon and begin to train these philosophers to think about Jesus not as an idea, but as the person who holds everything together. I think we need to do the exact same thing. Because we are not too far from the Athenians. We need to understand that Christ is our life. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to see Jesus everywhere we are. So give us strength to become the kind of people whose lives flow with patience and love and the light of Christ. And would you help us do that in ordinary life? when we're at work, at home, in the kitchen, in our bedroom, right where we live, we see that our life is Christ. And we're going to need help with that. We need lots of grace to fuel us and change us. And we pray that under His name, our Good Shepherd and our Teacher, and most of all, our Savior. And together we say, Amen.